This week's episode of the Love the Problem podcast, we continue the event series, and this time we go to the Tech Barbecue in Copenhagen, where we ran the podcasting stage for the entire event. Overall, we did 15 hours of recordings out of our stage studio and got an abundance of content gems. We decided to showcase Sabah Khalid from Arut Raj, Daniel Korski from Public, with special surprise drop-in from Michael Feldman, and Lena Chen, co-founder of Nix Hydra for Love the Problem, as they're trying to tackle big issues with their respective organizations. With Saba, we discussed how to teach sexual education to women in countries where the topic isn't allowed. With Daniel, we talked about how we can use technology to make public services more user-friendly for citizens. And with Lena, we talked about how they made games for female gamers and how people can use colors to get what they want out of life. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, everybody, and we are back live at Tech Barbecue. This is Startup 42 Media. Uh, me, Alex Feldman, and James Digby. Very excited. We're sitting down with Sabi, who has this company, Raji? Yes. Good, I said it correctly. <laughs> I, I thought it was going to be terrible. Um, anyways, uh, I, I confused the two in my head. Uh, anyways, we're really, really happy to sit down with you. Yeah. Um, Let's just jump right into it. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about your background? Uh, get as far back as you can, you want. Uh... Sure. <laughs> so I live in Karachi, Pakistan, and I never wanted to be a tech entrepreneur. Um, so, I... <laughs> Let's start off like, with that. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're ready. <laughs> didn't want to be a tech entrepreneur. I didn't even know what uh, being in tech was like because I was a journalist. I was writing about Pakistani women and their issues. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we had built something uh, which was an animated film that we would show to a lot of girls. And this was dubbed in various languages. We would go to some of the rural areas and we would put it on a screen and let the, uh, the class actually watch it. And uh, from there, we realized that every time we used to show this film and it was about topics such as child marriages or honor or um, uh, menstrual hygiene, any of these topics, the girls, as soon as they would see the content, they would have a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you w we had the time to answer the questions. Sometimes we didn't have the expertise. Sometimes we just had to pack up and leave and come back to the city. So we thought that, you know, how do we make this a conversation that's ongoing yeah. and that we don't leave halfway through? Uh, can I ask um, you, I want to like back way before this yeah, yeah. because there's I think a lot to unpack here yeah what got you in like that just sounds really interesting to me what got you into being a journalist mm -hmm. on I'm about to like very very overly summarize this yeah on women's issues in um, Pakistan like like I want to know that journey for you and, and how you got there and, and what I mean, it's sure. fascinating to me. Yeah, so I uh, always write, like to write, and I used to write in my local language as well as English. Um, and I was working for a few newspapers, and they always pushed me. And we're me. talking how early? Uh, when I was 22, yeah. Mm. Uh, I'm 35 now, so it's been a long time <laughs> since then. I was writing there, and I, they used to push me into like the, the culture journalism. They would never give me hard stories. but the They would just give you the soft pieces. The, Actually, going course. back into this time, yes. like, you know, Pakistan back in the day, and the Absolutely. changing of culture and the viewing of so you would only get fluff pieces Absolutely. of how I imagine <laughs> I was, Robin Shabatsky would get on Absolutely. How I Met Your Mother. I was uh, <laughs> covering all the actresses and actors and the, the 
the the music scene sometimes. Uh, however, um, but that's the, what the, where your passion came in. You, did you I care actually, for I didn't for even or? know what I wanted to do at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I did what they told me to do, but it's just so, that. So you're just kind of happy to be there, and, yes. and you're like, you want me to go right, talk to the celebrity? Sure. Or, I or, would or, go to fashion shows, and it was it was a complete big uh, jump from what I was doing and to what I wanted to do. It's just that the older that I got and I realized that, you know, and the more exposure that I got, and I got to a point where most of the women my age had babies and were married, and I was in a different uh, mm-hmm. place altogether in life. And I realized that the things, for instance, leaving and going to Copenhagen or New York, these were things that I couldn't do even though I was an adult woman. Yeah. And these things started to, you know, creep up, and these ideas were like, Why am I here? What am I doing? <laughs> What is my overall uh, value in this society in this place? Did you Can have I, to have a, a point? Do you sit down with yourself and go, "I need to do this. I need to do this for myself," and 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 invest the time into you uh-huh. to say, "This is now the way that I want to go." Uh, it didn't happen like right away. It didn't. It wasn't the shift happened like right off. It's okay. just one after another. The more women mm. I spoke to, the more women like me, the women who were married mm-hmm. and the problems they were going through, it all like started to make sense. So, you know, I have to. Um, there was a lot of content already available uh, how difficult lives for Pakistani women yeah. were, but there was no problem solving at all. Um, and that's where I think you know writing and then build, uh, creating a film and then going further and further got me to where I thought I could solve problems. Can I ask? I just have this from my life and some of the parallels I've seen, and yeah. I'm just really curious because it sounds like it might be similar. Um, so I lived in South Korea for a year, yeah, and and it was just a, this really really interesting thing that I went through was that there were, in South Korea there was sort of this expectation that you'd be married by like as a woman mm-hmm. at at like 24 or or 25, Absolutely. and if you weren't like, earlier for Pakistan, <laughs> earlier for <laughs> earlier for Pakistan, and but 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 and if you weren't like something was deathly wrong with you. Absolutely. And, and you were like damaged goods and whatever. But I found when I was there, and and I don't know if Pakistan's the same or not about expats, but I found that there the the Korean community is really really closed, mm-hmm. and all like the really interesting people that I met from Korea were all these women who were just like, you know what, screw the social conventions. I don't need to get married by 24. And they were like in their later 20s, early 30s, and they were kind of just doing whatever they wanted. And they were like the most interesting people there. Because they were just sort of like, yeah, I don't need to fit in the social structures, and I'm going to do what I want. And they were kind of leading their own lives. And but is getting that sim- to there is really hard as well. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. when you you say that screw it, I'm I'm okay with who I am, and I don't want to just uh, conform. That takes a long. That's time. not just a simple. We'll yeah, switch off from conformity to non-conformity yeah, overnight. Not, is that something you know from from issues that you've had or problems you had to overcome that you just said actually this isn't going to work for me or this needs to it, change and and one. It yeah. seems like little chips each time to kind of make something happen. But Absolutely. now have you got a foundation of where you feel that you you've yeah. taken yourself to that extra point? Yeah, today uh, the the talk that I have is on sex tech and uh, for me to even write that I'm in a talk for sex tech is really difficult for me to say till now because we have all these names that we call sex tech or sex education yep. it's reproductive health it's health and hygiene for us to even as a woman say that you know i am actually working in this space is back home really hard to accept yeah even um, now today even now today um can, yeah can i ask you a question because yeah. i had this hasn't gone live yet but i had this really really interesting interview uh i'm blanking on her name but uh, she's a professor out of the netherlands um and we got into talking about i'm, I'm curious if it's the same for pakistan how in a number of countries that are very sexually repressive where people are learning about sex is things like Pornhub Absolutely. and that's and that's like the only 
the only real option where they can like openly see different and, and can engage. You imagine how wrong the portrayal <laughs> yeah. of what it is and from a porn site that's how you should be with someone for else boys and girls <laughs> both <laughs> it's it's terrible and once you were saying that in south korea um it there women who are damaged goods once yeah, they pass yeah. the age we call them expired so <laughs> the Wait, best you, you <laughs> literally so hold on hold on you're yeah. saying literally in pakistan women have a sell-by date and Absolute, if they pass the sell-by date, they're expired. Absolutely. And I think the best thing that ever happened to me was that I became so expired by 35 <laughs> that my parents gave up on me. They're like, we can't do anything. Now do as you please. There is no man who will ever take you. <laughs> so, so all you're trying to say, right, if you follow your passion for long enough, that you'll get to the point where then you will be free enough to just <laughs> go off and do you're, I think everyone in your life analogy. will give up on you. <laughs> everyone <laughs> in your life will give up on you. Absolutely. And then for you're fully you free, free. For, for you to be free. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the same with startups. I mean, if you keep pursuing at some point, something yeah. <laughs> So the same thing. So kind of it merged in then. So you kind of went from journalism to entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. But again, you didn't say, I all of a sudden, I'm going to flip the switch. I'm not going to be a journalist anymore. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. You, it was kind of just so that gradual movement in between. I, yeah, remember when I was saying that I wanted to do the harder pieces? When I went to the editors and said that, you know, let me do, do this piece and let me do that piece, that didn't go well. Um, <laughs> and when it didn't go well, I was like, okay, I'll start my own blog and I'll do these pieces. And no. I started doing them. Uh, one of the things that I started doing was following tech entrepreneurs all through the city, what they were mm. doing, what the problems were, the, the ways that their parents stopped them from pursuing entrepreneurship. Um, and while I was looking at them, I was like, hey, you know, I could do this too. And I think I'm doing a little <laughs> bit of it with my own blog and finding, you know, sponsors for the blog and finding ways to um, uh, report the best stories. Um, yep. Was tech journalism prevalent in, in, when, when you were doing this? I mean, like, you know, we, here in Europe, we've got a plethora of different sources and, yeah. and different ways in. Was this just like, wow, these are just really cool, interesting people. I'm going to follow them and I'm going to write about them. That's it. Uh, so it's completely blown up now that we have vlogs and we have blogs and everything, but they concentrate on s subjects that sell, which is maybe travel, which is uh, sometimes just... Uh, uh, the local entertainment scene mm -hmm. or the music scene but nobody wants to kind of touch upon those harder subjects and there's not enough an audience for it as well yeah. um, nobody wants to read about mm. what a tech entrepreneur from Pakistan is doing in Pakistan strangely enough <laughs> uh, but it took time <laughs> should <It> do <laughs> <laughs> well here I am <laughs> talking here but um, yeah so it took a while but things are really rapidly changing uh, yeah. and now there are a few uh, blogs that uh, cover a lot of interesting stories there are podcasts now uh that that are covering both um, men's stories and women's stories because i think entrepreneurship whether you're a woman or a man it's just hard it's just super hard yeah. um maybe we can take the excuse of, of having you here in the studio today and, and maybe going through that divide and, and to touch mm -hmm. upon some of those issues like yeah. being a female in entrepreneurship in general so yeah. remove even pakistan remove all the other bits female in entrepreneurship and you say is there is there two different paths that, that the the one should have to take or is that, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with the, the seeing this. I, I see it a lot and I hear it a lot in terms of... I think I think something... I want to ask a question before we get there because I think it, it could, <laughs> could... No, because I think it'll be a good lead-in for that because I think where you really see the issues is sort of around funding, but I want to understand a little bit more about what the funding environment is in Pakistan before we can get into the differences between yeah, the genders. Yeah, sorry. Mm. Uh, so I think that could be... So I'm really curious about this, like... 
I, how are you funding startups in Pakistan? Like, like, what is the ecosystem around that? And and yeah. and, and, and so, yeah. and then we can get into how that no, leads to gender differences. Yeah, the ecosystem is very very young. Um, mm. There's not enough. Uh, we haven't had a single exit. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got very young companies. Uh, most of them have found. Uh, so none of them are in impact space. They're mostly like let's say uh, the the Pakistani Uber or let's say a, a, a food panda mm -hmm. where you can deliver like things that have worked globally and now they're replicating it in the local clones kind of coming yeah, in absolutely but of course it's not a bad model it's not a terrible model to have and i think it's a good one to, to kind of leapfrog a lot of the other conventions you yeah. have to kind of sit through and go through as well yeah um, but i also do wonder we have different set of problems uh, mm -hmm. uh we we need more innovation that actually fits our context these are things that will always work but there's so much more that we can solve we have problems when it comes to flooding every year there's no like you know uh, there's food issues there's so many other things that we could innovate on mm -hmm. however we we don't either have the exposure to innovate or we just don't have the technology expertise to innovate or we don't have the, the let's say the um, VCs uh, who will mm -hmm. actually fund uh, so th all of these limitations exist for startups uh, however there's still it's it's a vibrant scene it's oh. it's up and coming do you need to have an exit from one of these companies or copies or whatever they are mm -hmm. to be released into the ecosystem and then others then will be able to feed and seed off that so like in the pa yeah. same way that the PayPal mafia mm -hmm. split up and then yeah. seeded a lot of different things. Does, does that or, need to or how in Sweden Spotify, Spotify and, and by well, right? just mm -hmm. I mean has really energized that ecosystem? Yeah, and, 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 and um, Daniel Elk and, mm -hmm. and you know, looking to from not only Spotify mm -hmm. to all the way through to Klarna, mm -hmm. for example, yeah. have touched from one of these guys mm -hmm. in that scene. So does it need something like that? I think for me, it really doesn't matter. It's still going to be hard because even if we do have an exit, it's going to be a traditional uh, startup or a business model that for us making revenue from, from our app is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. People don't want to pay for an app. Um, is that the cultural thing as opposed to? A absolutely, absolutely. Uh, information they want it free um, uh, also like big brands don't want to support like a new upcoming app they don't know what's gonna happen in the next five years uh, so they're all these risk factors make it difficult I don't think an exit will make it make it different maybe it might bring some more investors in our space no. international investors uh, but impact startups always have a difficult time um, so I heard you now mentioning on the impact scene particularly mm -hmm. and then yeah. you know you're saying that it's virtually non-existent there mm -hmm. is it because the that the people don't have, they, well, I'm guessing they must have the passion to solve the problem in some way. But they, yeah. they, they, you, you're saying they're missing some of the tools, they're, yeah. they're missing some of the ingredients, but surely it's about making it happen first and just doing it. Well, is that too hard to, to overcome as an entrepreneur? Absolutely. I think it's just a mindset that's missing. Uh, so a lot of people have great, uh, let's say, programming skills, and they're, you know, Pakistan and India has a lot of smart, talented people who are very good at uh, technology. However, they would rather work for an international software house, uh, building, let's say, an app for somebody else, as opposed to building something that solves a problem within the country. Because there's so yeah. much uh, vulnerability in building something that might not work, that might not get funded, that might not be able to exist. Yeah. And when you have parents who want you to... <laughs> I was going to ask, does, yeah? it, does it come from the culture side of things where you're, you're saying, you know... Don't go out and risk yourself. Go out and get a steady job that Absolutely. you can get a paycheck every single um, month. You don't risk anything. You gain a f you always gain a little bit, but you, you're not moving much further forward. Yeah, yeah. How do you break uh, that mold? Uh, okay. How is it possible? I was asking a question because something that sounded to me, and tell me if this is wrong or not before getting into that. It sounds 
are these people still staying in Pakistan? No, they're still working so the, for these for these companies, or they're leaving Pakistan. They are here. They some of them have left, but most of them are still. But it, but yeah. it sounds like in a weird way you're having almost a remote brain drain, in the sense of mm-hmm. like you're you're training all these people to be highly skilled. Yeah. But they're working for all these external companies, and 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 and, and, earning and, well. and, and yeah. I mean yeah. they're earning well, but but they're more generating the value. For outside of Pakistan, outside of Pakistan, and not really the value inside of Pakistan without actually leaving Pakistan, which Absolutely. is kind of where it's you have this weird. It's a remote brain drain. We haven't even had a brain drain like this before. <laughs> <laughs> How do we? <laughs> yeah. That's a really weird. That's a really interesting thing to me of like this remote brain drain idea of, of the people aren't leaving, but their expertise and intelligence is leaving. Yeah. to another part of the world. I, I, but then you yeah. also then get the, the money coming in from that into the into the. Economy in general, though, I think it benefits. It benefits, but I think for if we want entrepreneurship to thrive in the country, I think uh, we need to build that mindset that you can do it. So, what goes into what needs to change? What what is is there? If you can wave a magic wand or shoot, uh, you know, a silver bullet, what could (laughs) it be that that makes the impetus that that says we can do it as a country, or we can make entrepreneurs, or make drive entrepreneurship? I think role models, uh, some very, very positive role models who are working from the country. So most of the startups, once uh, we've had a couple who were doing really well and immediately they got into Y Combinator and they left. Mm-hmm. And now the money that they've raised has all uh, been raised in the U.S. They're, they're registered as U.S. companies. They really don't belong to Pakistan and it's hard to, for us to take ownership of their success mm-hmm. because we mm-hmm. absolutely had nothing to do with them besides. I yeah? think so you should take um, some, some notes out of the Malay. Asian playbook, right? Because <laughs> Be there's a lot of Singaporean companies out there, mm-hmm. but I think the Malaysia. <laughs> but it, yeah. it, it, it sounds like what well. you essentially need is a, is a P combinator, so Pakistani combinator. It needs to happen. Keep that stuff locally, locally, and 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 have. You need to build a peacom. Is that is that how <laughs> you try to say? Oh, there you go. You heard it first here. First here. I'm, I'm gonna. You should do it yourself. You start P combinator. Yeah. Pakistani's Y combinator or. Yeah. <laughs> clone. Y Combinator clone. Are we, are we saying like are clones better? Is that you know no, is, whatever? Is and I honestly, personally, I, I think Y Combinator is honestly coasting on the reputation now. Personal opinion. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's been that good for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, we can argue about that. That's a yeah. that's a pretty bold statement. But 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 I, I see what you're saying. Something like that that can can bring the ecosystem and, and get it going and, and keep it. True. Um, we have a lot of accelerators and incubators that have okay. opened up and. I, I hate to say it, I've been part of some. Some have been really good. Some have been really, really bad. Incubators uh, or accelerators? Yeah. Or just that whole, is it in the building of the process of, of you know, entrepreneurs? Um, yeah, so they they basically help you for, let's say, three to four months. But the help is almost of optics or it's just a... Uh, a lot of the organizations that are running have never really scaled a startup. So the advice that you're getting is sometimes really bad. And sometimes I think for me, the best thing that I did was maybe reach out outside of Pakistan and find mentors while working in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been the best thing that I did. So I could continue mm-hmm. to live in Pakistan and build yeah. my team there and do it in a very lean way. But at the same time, have advice and expertise coming from outside. So that really helped me. Yeah. I mean, we blasted past it. Yeah, yeah we, we ran through the whole think, session really um, quick. And we actually waving pieces of paper behind our heads. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah, wait. So can we just do one last thing? Because I don't think we touched it at all. Yeah. 
What is it you actually do? Yeah. <laughs> in the in the last minute, can you sum up what it is you're actually doing? Okay, so out of all the things, I just like to say that we're building a chatbot. Her name is Raji, and she provides girls with advice on reproductive health and their fantastic. Yeah, and their safety, and on topics that are considered so taboo that you can't discuss with your mother or your friends. Now you're in a safe confine of Absolutely. the platform that you truly love and you utilize every yeah. single day. Yeah. Anyway, absolutely. You send private messages <laughs> to people and. Uh, so it's a bot, but then if let's say the bot, if it's an emergency query, then one of our gynecologists takes it over from uh, our bot. So it works oh, wow. with a human and uh, a robot mixed Amazing. together. Amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Unfortunately, I'm so, we have so to. So upset <laughs> the fact that we only find out about that now. No. <laughs> so, no, but as that is always the way. Thank you ever so much. Yeah, for yeah. Thank, thank you for coming so on. We'd love to have you today. again and really go into the I'm fuller so sorry story. Sorry for you missing your break. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you very much. All right. All right. Hey, everybody. Uh, we are recording live at Tech Barbecue. This is actually our last recording of this two-day event. It's been quite a journey. We've, I think we're at like 15 hours of content right now, about seven, eight each day. Um, so quite exciting. I, I know I'm quite tired, but uh, it's been worth it. Um, Kind of like the last day yesterday, funny how this around, we have our, our main guest here, uh, Daniel Korski from Public, but as a surprise, wasn't expecting this, my, my dad's now on the show, so my dad, <laughs> Michael Fellman. Uh, hi, dad. MSA, yeah, hi, dad. Hi, hi dad. Everyone <laughs> <laughs> said, hi, dad. Uh, he, he's joining us for uh, a little a little fatherly commentary. Which actually is quite interesting, is even before we sat down and turned the mics on, he's like, oh, do you know this company? It's like in this company, they're all super connected already, so it all yeah. makes sense. Well, I guess I, I <laughs> it's guess all it, fam. it's all the family. Yeah. Well, Daniel, thank the... you very much for being on the show. Uh, and of course, yourself, Michael. Thank Dad. You. <laughs> <laughs> now I can actually see what he's doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Best way to keep track it, of him and actually take part. Yeah. Daniel, why don't you tell the listeners of who you are, where you're from, take it back as far as you want to go? Well, 3,000 years ago, my family. <laughs> I'm Jewish, but I won't be doing that. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, I'm Daniel Korski. Uh, I, I guess I'm here because I'm the CEO and co-founder of uh, a firm called Public that tries to transform public services. It's a business I set up in the UK and I scaled to Europe. But but I'm originally uh, not from the UK, originally from, from Denmark. Well, I say that, um, and it is true in the sense that I was born here, but my parents were actually Polish refugees who themselves came uh, to Denmark in the late 60s when they were kicked out of Poland. Um, yeah, because they were Jewish. And so our, our family history is, is a sort of very international, very European yeah. one. And I guess now that I've ended up in, in London, I'm building, you know, you know, backwards. I'm sort of building the business <laughs> in all the places that we've, we've, we've ever been. Jumping into that, where would you class, where, where are you from? Where would you say? Um, you know, I think I'm 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 British now. I, 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 you know, I'm partly Danish. I'm very Jewish. I'm European. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, the, rea I, the reality is identity is a complex thing and, and probably in the modern world you're better off trying to shape your own. I have a very good friend who last weekend told me that, uh, that in, at the passing of his father, his mother let him in on a secret, which is that his father's father wasn't exactly the man he thought he was. So the father's father was somebody else. Why does that matter? Because the great family name that my friend thought that he'd been carrying forth as the third generation and now with his own... Son, the fourth generation realized, actually, that isn't the family's name. Mm -hmm. The family's name is something else. And I said, there you go. My name is Korsky. 
That name was invented by my grandfather to escape the Nazis. Our original name is Finkel. Throughout my life, mm-hmm. I've known that I need to f- come up with my identity myself. Now mm-hmm. my friend re- realizes he needs to do the same. And that's the point. Uh, he qu- just had to do it later in time. Than, than he had to do did. it a bit later. <laughs> <laughs> Quick question from, from my end. And my family background is Jewish as well. And it's just one of those things. I think Judaism has become very much a cultural thing and less of a religious thing. Was that something similar in your family? And I'm New Yorkers, and I think a lot of the New York, New York Jews are more culturally or almost ethnically Jewish than they are religiously Jewish. Is, is that something similar that you felt or not really? Or Well, I think it's a it's a great and, and historical <laughs> question because you say, you know, it's become. Well, has it become? Or have there always been lots of different strands in Judaism? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't just mean, you know, Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardic Jews and, and uh, the mountain Jews of... Uh, of Uzbekistan. What I mean is that there have always been different strands. Uh, and my grandfather is a good example. You know, my grandfather was a very, uh, identified very strongly as, as a Jew and, and left, you know, his, his country of birth, Poland, because he was Jewish, but never really celebrated many of the the high seasons and and when okay. w- and and he would leave his country for his religion, but then still not well. And that's the complexion. Well, he didn't leave, you know, he didn't win. Well, yeah, I mean, Dad, you're right. Taking that and then you know, yeah. standing up for it so much, but then still not practicing it. Is that, that yeah? That because that's what the nature. That's back to the answer. That's the nature of of Judaism. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a lot of things. It's a people. It's a culture. It's yeah. a religion. And, you know, you're a young man, mm-hmm. so, you know, you may have a view now. Who knows what mm-hmm. you'll be saying 20 years from now? <laughs> you know, then you might be saying, oh, you know what? I do like going to temple. Uh, you know, maybe <laughs> there's something bigger at work. Who knows? Yeah. Did you just slightly slip into the, the like, Jewish accent there? Is that Did that I do that? Yeah, that? that was because I was trying to speak to, temple. to him. <laughs> 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 it's like a sequel. Like, yeah, yeah. You know. So, I, not to butt in here, but we have a similar, similar story. Um, uh, my mother's maiden name is Burakov. And so my mom used to tell me we were always from Poland. And uh, someone in the family did a family tree. And it really turned out we were from Russia. Sure. But but her father, or her grandfather on her father's side had moved from Russia to Poland. So her father was born in Poland. Yeah. But really the family was originally from Russia. Exactly. And my right. family is originally from Ukraine. And then there's an additional complexity, which yeah. is after the Second World War, the Polish border moved 300 miles west that's right so wherever they were from kind of was suddenly another place my yeah. my mother was born in a small village which a year prior to her birth was germany by the time wow. she was born it was poland where is she from it's, like, mean, a, you know. it's like a friend of mine nobody really knew where the borders were back then anyway yeah. 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 like you said they kept moving yeah. <laughs> amazing so yeah so that was the tangent and apologies for, for taking it down there but public um you say so setting up the company where did you go from, you know, what what, what drove you well, to, to take... Well, let's get before that. Like, or even before that. No, because we didn't really talk about, like, like, okay, so you were Danish, growing up in Denmark, like, what were you really interested in? Like, I want to see how you got to creating mm. public. Like, so I think it's a great question, but it also is predicated on a, on a, on a sort of false construct, which is that... Um, there is a linear story okay. uh, <laughs> to be lived and told. Soren Kierkegaard, the, the Danish existential philosopher, had this re- really interesting phrase. He said, uh, you know, you live your life forwards, but you only understand it backwards. <laughs> Which is to say, you're just doing a bunch of things. It's only backwards when you're sitting around trying to explain to everybody else and possibly yourself, you kind of make sense of it all. And And in a professional context, we often have to do that because you go to job interviews and people say, 
Well, that's interesting. Well, why don't you tell us how you got there? And, of course, the last thing you can do is say, to tell you the truth, I've got no idea how I got there. You can't say, <laughs> can't say that. You have to tell people, well, I, I studied that, and that led to that. And you create this linearity, which doesn't obviously uh, comport with reality. So I've kind of decided to be honest about that and mm -hmm. tell people there isn't linearity in my life. There is a series of impulses and interests that led to one thing or another. You know, I fell madly in love with a Bosnian refugee when I was at university. And she was fantastic and smart and stunning. And I, I was in love in the way that you can only be when, you, when you, your heart hasn't been broken. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, then, and then when she, you know, uh, invited me to visit her family in Bosnia and at the time war-torn Bosnia, you know, I, I kind of saw myself... And my future there, you know, I was going to go and help rebuild her war-torn country and maybe Orlando Bloom would play me in the film afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, guess what? I rocked up in Sarajevo and I had a great time until she left me. And then suddenly, like a schmuck, I was sort of <laughs> stuck in Sarajevo. And then I made, you know, I called my dad and I said, Father, I'm, I'm here. And he said... Well, aren't you a schmuck? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he said, figure it out. When I said, what should I do? And, and I did. And, and from that, um, I, I got a job working at an NGO. From that, I got a job working at the UN. Uh, the UN chief there, a great, uh, fantastic uh, man called Paddy Ashdown, who'd been leader of the mm -hmm. Liberal Democrat Party, retired, became the UN envoy to uh, to Bosnia, helping to bring the war-torn country together. He then helped me get a job as an advisor to uh, the Defense Committee in the British Parliament. From that, I did a secondment to the government, the British government, just as um, we kind of entered this war on terror kind of period uh, post 9-11 and suddenly there was a sort of premium on people who'd, who'd been to these weird war-torn places you know oh well maybe you know how to operate with the military so I got sent to Afghanistan where I worked I was I ran the reconstruction of southern Iraq uh, in Basra province after the war I was in Yemen wow. and so I did a bunch of these things I, I spent some time in Washington on loan to the State Department I came back because because of some family illnesses and can I can I ask a quick question? I'm not even done. Wait, no, but I, I but about wait. You have more war places. There are more war places. There's one more. Oh, wait, then say the That's one more. That's a specialty. <laughs> war places. Wait, it was. It was for a while. It was the thing that I say did. the next one, and then I'll ask my question after the. I was in Libya with the rebels, as a well. As well. Yeah. Are you sure you weren't a gun runner? <laughs> I, I met. I met a few. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're saying this, and they were coming to you like, oh, you've you've been to these war torn places. What do you feel like you've learned from going to those different places? It's a great question. I mean, look, you, at a very practical level and in a way that relates to what I do today, which is to build technology, to, to build you know states and public services, the thing that I, I kind of learned in a way I probably wouldn't have learned if I'd done anything else was you know, what it looks like when there's nothing and how you take the first and the second and the third step to build something. And when I say to build something, I mean everything from an education system, a, a, you know, an mm. army, an intelligence service, a tax uh, <laughs> a code, etc. everything. Yeah, them. because there's nothing. And so I think if I'd started my career working in any of the countries, you know, we're from, I don't think I would have realized the first principles of a lot of the things around mm. us because you just take for granted what's there. Whereas I ended up in a bunch of places that had nothing. And so somebody said, "We well, we... We obviously need to, you know, disarm people and then build a more structured army. Great idea. How do you do that? Um, I had a great experience when uh, <laughs> when I, call, well, I was called into a meeting and I was told in the run-up to to the 
Iraq War that the Bosnian Serbs had been selling chemical weapons to Saddam Hussein and they'd been raided by the US military and the intelligence services had been involved and so on and they said so we've decided to disband the intelligence services and we're going to create a new unified intelligence structure bringing together all the previous warring factions and they, I said great you know why are you telling me and I said well you'd like you to build it I, said, <laughs> I have no idea how to do that uh, but I learned and so to answer very practically I mean there are lots of so you built, helped build the intelligence service of Bosnia yeah Bosnia I, I got a quick question on that. Since you broke this down to like first principles, did you find that you were more or less like recreating existing structures in these things, or you were kind of going down and creating completely new, innovative versions of these things, or or some combination, or like did you kind of naturally logically get to what we've already done, or or we'll just reference pop culture and just say this is the Q division. <laughs> 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 well, we didn't quite do that, but but I did. Uh, and I'm quite proud of this. I did, when we created the Bosnian Intelligence Agency, I did manage to get the acronym um, to a point where in the in the local language, the acronym spelled WASP, which I thought <laughs> yes. I, was very, I was very proud of. Uh, but uh, but 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 how, it's how many a, consultancy hours were <laughs> spent on that? <laughs> Actually, just sort of I was just doodling. Yeah. But um, in, in 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 seriousness, um, you, you know, you go on a journey. And you're always trying to relate to what you know, build on top of that what could be, while engaging with the reality of, of human existence. You know, Immanuel Kant talked about the crooked timber of humanity. You know, nothing you draw on a piece of paper, you know, <laughs> looks like that in the real world. You've got lots of other people who have different views, and and so that's that's the sort of underlying answer, really. Which is, in some cases, we sought to replicate what we thought worked well other places other times we try to evolve and throughout it all we contended with lots of different perspectives some of which were benign and others weren't were there similarities between the things that you that were kind of being replicated and similarities with the things that were being kind of innovated on or it was kind of more random you have to remember in a lot of these places people just really want normality mm -hmm. you know they they don't want creativity like they want um, basic services basic and services. how do they get it they How can want, they get it? Let, yeah, let's unpack that, right? Mm -hmm. What do you want? Like, you want not to be shot at. You want your kids to be healthy and sent to school. You want your mother to be taken care of. You want food on the table. Clean you water. Want, you want clean water. You want a job. And so, you know, that's a heavy responsibility for anybody who wants to support that kind of process. And people want some pretty basic things. Um, you know, you want to be able to kind of walk to school knowing that your kid's legs aren't going to be blown off by a landmine that's left there, right? Um, so people want some basic things. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you can innovate and be creative in the way that you deal with those problems. And sometimes you can build something totally new. But you mustn't forget mm -hmm. that people want some basic things. Mm -hmm. I've made wow. everybody totally quiet. I didn't, yeah, mean to no, take it there. Like, um, I didn't know where this would go. And I definitely did not think about you know, on war. the root journey of war and building, you know, intelligence services. Yeah. But there is a red theme, you know, a uh, red thread rather. And, and it is about, you know, trying to recreate public services in new and better ways. Mm -hmm. And that was a really extreme uh, set of experiences. Mm -hmm. But now I'm doing something not dissimilar, not so extreme. But it's about how do we build the next generation of public services? Fine. People aren't worried about whether their kids are going to be blown off 
their legs off on the way to school, but they aren't happy with the way services are being delivered. They don't like the fact that they're spending too much money in their view and getting too little, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. what, what, what do you see as the, let's say, I'm going to call this, the biggest challenges in the public service industry that GovTech-like public is trying to to change or improve upon or... Like, what are the big things that people are saying? Like, oh, this isn't really working. We need. So I guess, I guess, I think we should start by saying, you know, everything has been transformed by technology, right? Advertising, financial services, and we've all become, you know, the children of Uber and Google and and uh, and and Facebook, which is to say, the level of functionality offered on Amazon um, is so far away from anything that most people experience when they engage with public services that there's been this gap that's opened up in how citizens kind of experience those services. And I think on top of that, there's a feeling of inequitable distribution, you know, and that's on both sides, right? You know, some people who pay a lot of taxes don't feel that they're getting what they want out of them. Mm -hmm. And some people who feel that they're paying a lot of taxes proportionate to their income don't feel that they're getting enough of them. And so that really, you know, goes to the heart of how do you build a modern state that operates, you know, not like Amazon, in the sort of strictest sense, but in the sense that Amazon knows, you know, what you're going to buy, uh, more or less, based on your past behavior and that of millions of others. It's probably sent, you know, at least half of what it thinks you're going to buy to a local distribution center before you've bought it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is able to encourage you to buy a bunch of services that it thinks you're going to buy. And, and if you think about that, that level of functionality, that level of service, that level of data-enriched understanding is one that, within legal and ethical parameters, would be very useful in public services. You know, you have a business, you have a child, you have a sick parent. You know, how many times do you have to tell government and how many different ways, you know, wouldn't it be better if you were catered to in a different way? So well, that's... So yeah. I guess I have a question, though, which may be more applicable to the, de to the developing world as opposed to the developed world, but... In many cases, the government is a major employer, right? And so, um, maybe efficiency is not is not one of their main goals. So, how do you balance between, say, you know, uh, the government as a source of employment and efficiency? I think it's a great question. I, I guess the way I'd answer it is to say that technology is politically neutral. You know, conservatives like GovTech because they think of it as an efficiency play. Mm. And left-wingers like GovTech because they think of it as transforming the the nature of the power relationship between citizens and the state. So GovTech can do a bunch of different things. What I say to those who are particularly worried about, you know, uh, let's say it, ro ro robotically induced employment, particularly in the public sector, I say, what do you want your doctor to do? Do you want your doctor to spend two-thirds of his uh, her time you know, filling in paperwork, or would you like the doctor to spend the time with you? <laughs> what are the things that the machine is least capable of? Well, empathy. spending time with you, <laughs> spending time with you yeah. in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that you like, you know, yeah. in an empathetic, oh. you know, responsive way. So, if we can get rid of as much as possible, let me give you one example. You know, a business that we're building now. You know, what we find in lots of countries is, you know, the doctor kind of sees you. They have a conversation, they type up their notes, they may do it after they've seen you, they may do it at the end of the day, maybe they pile it all up and they do it three days later. Well, guess what? Studies show that 
doctors are really bad at remembering the things. <laughs> and funnily enough, the more senior they are, the, the, the more inaccurate their recollection is. <laughs> I wonder why that is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. And the more specialists they are, they're more likely to err towards assuming that your symptoms relate to the particular speciality that they're familiar with. So, you know, we are developing, um, you know, voice-activated uh, product that allows the doctor just to dictate what they have concluded. Um, and for that language to be automatically connected to a taxonomy of ailments, which is directly connected to a taxonomy of medical pro uh, medical products. And so, you know, rather than this is hap happening three days after, two days after, it happens immediately. And the doctor doesn't have to spend time writing it down, but can engage with you. So that's just one example. So what I, sorry, it was a long answer, but it's to say technology isn't about, you know, reducing the workforce unless that's what you want it to do. What mm -hmm. it can do is to get the workforce focused on the things that it probably can do better than any you know, automatic system can. Uh, on that note, I mean, considering that you're saying publics and, and GovTech and, and public services and, and get, bring technology into it, that it's such a broad scope and possibility. What are kind of the more specific, like use cases or applications that that you and you just mentioned one? Yeah, uh, that social you care, healthcare, a lot of you know care related issues. <laughs> all, care the, all the all the care all the tech. But the problem, I think, actually, with your company, there isn't one particular product you're making. No, it's so we we are yeah. So we're a venture firm. So what, and we're an ecosystem business. So we invest, we build, uh, and we accelerate businesses. So. Mm -hmm. In other words, there are a bunch of businesses that exist. They come to us, and we support them either with money or capability. Or we build our own businesses where we think there's a, a difference. And I guess the big theory there is, you know what? The thing that's changed other markets has been product-led businesses. The thing that has not been allowed to change public services is that nobody's building product-led businesses focused on public services. I say nobody, but there are businesses. But on the whole, the market is dominated by service businesses that aren't building replicable products. And so we're kind of trying to do that. And then we do a bunch of things to support that. So we have co-working spaces and events, and we have a sort of intelligence research division. Um, but back to the question of, you know, what is interesting. Definitely, we're all going to live longer with more diseases. Uh, so healthcare costs are only going to increase mm -hmm. in a system that is, you know, insufficiently digitized. So that's why that's a really rich area. But also there's a rich area, rich seam, if you will, around the whole policing, law enforcement, justice. You know, today people are logging paperwork from courtroom to courtroom. Um, there is like a very limited data informed approach yeah. to sentencing and penitentiary reform and so on. So I think that's going to be a massive area. So I sort of classify that as kind of security, law enforcement, justice, Prison uh, tech doesn't. Prison, have the same it name. doesn't sound the same. No, you don't want. You don't want like no. But there is jail tech. Jail tech. Yeah, there's <laughs> yeah. a sort of there's something around that. Um, so those would be, I think, two areas. And of course, you know, the future of mobility in various different ways. Um, we kind of tend to think about the future of mobility as something that happens away from governments. You know, Elon Musk developing an autonomous Tesla or mm. Facebook and so on. But the reality is, you know, in every other aspect of, of transportation, the government plays a massive role. So it'll play a massive role in like cars was, too. It was quite interesting. Earlier today, we actually had a D Danish prime minister on, who was the chairman minister. of the of of housing and transportation. 
Member of Parliament, not the Prime Minister. Right. Wait, that's the Prime Minister? Yep. I think I said that earlier as well. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. The Prime Minister of Housing and Transportation. Anyways. Still the Minister of Housing and Transportation. Member of Parliament, Chairman of the Housing and Transportation Committee. And he was talking about how the new metro line here is going to really affect and how, how they're doing policies around it and they're changing the schedules and, and how he's really trying to yeah. play that into his constituents. And it's, it's yeah. a really interesting thing. It's exactly kind of what you're saying. Yeah, the, yeah. I'll give you a good example, right? Um, everybody thinks about autonomous cars uh, in their isolation. You know, how are they going to make autonomous cars fully autonomous? How are people going to relate to it? But, you know, how are we going to make the road autonomous? By which I mean, how are we going to put um, you know, interconnected sensors in the roads that may be able to communicate you know, to drivers and, and road mm -hmm. managers mm -hmm. you know, different things about conditions, uh, blockages, uh, temperatures, and so on? So there's a whole kind of underlying framework. I'll give you another example, right? So, you know, over the last five years, we've seen a total explosion of the drone kind of industry. Our skies are now not crowded, but but full of lots of things at lower altitude. Didn't they say that before. in the 60s and 70s that the skies were crowded? Yeah. And then no, but, that but, <laughs> but, but that's what have automation then allowed us to crowd them much more. But what's happened now is that we've had a below kind of, you know, 100-yard that, that was always pretty uncrowded. Now that's crowded. So we have this interesting system, uh, the this, this system problem, which is that you've got massive airspace above, you know, 100-yard systems, you know, running, you know, the traffic control of how kind of your Dreamliner lands and nothing underneath. And suddenly the, the two are clashing and the big system can't really oversee the small. So oh. it's just an example where, where authorities are going to have to move the entire way in which they manage this, the sky from like three meters above us all the way up. Yeah. That's that's not going to happen by, you know, an, an, an entrepreneur. You know, <laughs> it's going to happen in partnership with a government uh, yeah. and or a regulator, and that's just one example. What, I'm just curious. What are, what are, I mean, when you at least when I think of government, I think of government services, right? Um, and having been involved in that in in in, in a certain way in almost another life, but my background's an attorney. Um, how the citizens are able to access that can often be a very um, cumbersome, time-consuming, frustrating experience. Yeah. And I think part of that is because, um, I think you alluded to it earlier, um, you have so many different players involved. So you could have attorneys, you could have social workers, you could have the legal system, and the amount of paperwork. And and it's and to be frank, in most cases, it's overburdened. Right. I would think that if you can incorporate technology to be able to del deliver these goods and services in a more efficient way, then you would be able to deliver more services to the citizens. Sure, and, and, and let me give you a great example. I backed a company called Future, and they, they started developing chatbots, but they kind of realized there was a real need in the public sector. And what they realized was, you know, there are a lot of things you need to go on to very poorly designed government websites to do, <laughs> you know, and take all the things you need to do with your car. Register your car, park your car, et cetera, et cetera. And you've got to sort of faff around on very poorly designed sites that the, where the user journey is unclear, et cetera, et cetera. 
So they came up with this idea with what if you could just take a picture of your license plate and you could put that picture into any social media, so Facebook, uh, whatever it is you want, and it could automatically uh, integrate with the vehicle registration system. So all that could happen in your background. It would ask you, the bot would ask you, Oh, we see that you've got a picture of your car. Would you like to A, register your car, B, park your car somewhere? Da, da, da. Same service, much easier, wow. happening where the where the where the citizen is, not yeah. bringing forcing the citizen to go where the government is. And that really I think to the heart of your your point. You should have a conversation with the, the member of it's Parliament who really was the it. head of the communications for SCAT. Yeah. Previous yeah. to his role. Right. Uh, so I think that, that was there's some things I wanted to say there. I yeah. must admit, I, I sat on my tongue for, but still. Um, this has been fascinating, Daniel. I think, you know, this is, even hearing the journey and seeing where you've come from, but also seeing where you are now and also putting yourself in a position where you want to push GovTech to a whole new level and put it into the forefront of, of people's minds and saying, actually, dealing with the government and dealing with services isn't a painful thing. We need to do it anyway. Let us be the connector and guide for that as well. So with that in mind, I mean, like, if you yeah. are working on anything related to public services, into, into government tech, um, I mean, I suggest you reach out to Daniel and the guys at Public. Do. Probably not Daniel, but no, someone else. Yeah. I'd go further. My email is daniel at public.io. Please email me your ideas. There you go. So, and please don't spam him. <laughs> right? I have and a spam filter. Okay. <laughs> you, <laughs> you Nigerian princes out there. Yeah. <laughs> he knows he's not related. We've been through the story. <laughs> okay. So, but... I mean, this has been a fascinating show, and we'd can, love to have you back can on. Can I ask one last question? Yeah, squeeze yeah, it in. Dad says, we're not done. We're over, he says. No, because yeah. I, I ahead, find Dad. what you're doing is, is very fascinating. Um, another area where I think there, there's definitely need for <clears throat> technology um, and certainly efficiency is an area that I'm passionate about, is in, in, in at least in the U.S., but it could be a global, is uh, the veterans. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Mm. And... If you've ever dealt with in the yep. in the U.S. with the Veterans Administration, yep. it is such a bloated, inefficient. Yep. And I got involved with a nonprofit called America's Warriors, and this is not a, a plug for them. But what they do, they don't actually provide any services themselves, but they're actually a portal mm. so that veterans can get the service because mm. there is services out there. Yep. They just don't know how to find them, and mm-hmm. I think that's a big problem with the citizenry in general. Yep. Is that and maybe it's done on purpose, I don't know. But there are so many services out there that people don't know about because nobody is connecting the dots. Yeah, I agree. And I think I'm glad you raised that. You know, I've I've worked in lots of different war zones. Well uh, that's why I brought it up because exactly. of some of your background. <laughs> close proximity with colleagues from the armed services, including from the US. So this is an issue close to my heart as well. One of the things I found really frustrating in the UK is that um veterans uh, don't have a digital way of identifying themselves mm. so that they can more easily get access to certain services or that one could draw information from different sources and say, oh, you know, we can see on your healthcare record there's something that one needs to, to be careful of. And and it's been an issue of some kind of frustration. And in fact, I've been lobbying, you know, government in the UK to think about what is the digital identity that you can offer veterans different than a sort of physical mm. card you know different than somebody going on a website um so I, I i agree with you and i i think we also have to think about what the veterans of tomorrow are because we kind of tend to think of veterans as old people mm-hmm. you know 
not necessarily you know, only D-Day, but now Iraq War, but you know, the, the veterans of tomorrow are the ones that grew up with you know, Instagram and Facebook, and they have a totally different set of expectations from services than the D-Day veterans. Mm. And that's mm-hmm. really a, a big challenge for them. And welcome. Uh, we're still here live at Tech Barbecue. Very, very exciting. Another great guest. We're here with Lena Chen. Uh, I literally just forgot all the affiliations you have. So, Lena, what, what are what are you working with at the moment that I can affiliate you with before we jump into it? Oh, that's that's actually a really tough question because I have, let's see, like four small projects with definitive t- deadlines, but basically. Where okay, I can, so, like, so I'm going to call her Lena Chen and her small four uh, small you, projects. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's funny because now, like, when I get invited to conferences and they're like, can we write Nix Hydro, which is the company that I started, and it left last year. So I'm like, well, no, because that's not what I'm really affiliated with anymore. So then I just put self, and then so people are like, it, are you from Self Magazine? I'm like, no. Oh, yeah, I mean, like, of, I was saying they invited because of Nix Hydra, but it's yeah. like, what do I put on my, you know, like, the badge right now? I what mean, what does it say today? right now? It just says my name, which is very good. Um, but they, you know, they got it correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A lot of times, you know, like, they want the company underneath, and I'm like, well, like, I don't really want to spend that much time talking about my company that I no longer work at. Like, I can, you know, like, I can talk a little bit here about it, like, if you want to know anything. But, but it's generally, it's like, I want to go with what I'm doing now and what yeah. I'm doing next, but there's nothing now that I can put as a company necessarily, right? Is that for being like, you know, you've, you're coming out of your company that you founded and, you know, people know you from that, but you want them to know you for the next thing already? Or, um, or you just want them just to forget well, about that part and think about more about you? Sorry to ask these Yeah, I mean, well, also, you do. know, here's the thing, like, I... Like, it was a gaming company, but I've been out of the gaming industry for a year and a half. So then, like, a lot of times, if, mm-hmm. if it does say Nix Hydra, I've just had the experience of people being like, what's your opinion on what's happening with, like, what's that thing called? Apple Arcade or whatever. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, have, I haven't been keeping <laughs> it. Like, it's, so like, it's, the conversation goes in the wrong direction yeah. is what happens. So but, right? it, but so it somewhat <laughs> sounds like to me... It's so that's basi- a very long answer to your question. No, but it sounds like to me that basically what you're saying is, like, Nix Hydra's an ex-boyfriend. And and basically, like people keep asking about him, and just like I don't want to talk about him. Like we've been broken up for a year now, and, yeah. <laughs> and I'm on to new things. I got these four new guys in my in the picture. And I want to talk about them. Like not quite that, but sure. He's American. These analogies kind of come into the but way. She's but. an American too. Why, oh, sorry, South not African. exactly South African. Oh, yeah, so where did you class yourself South from? African. So you 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 say you're South African. I mean, I am like on my passport. So yeah, that's where, where would you say that? Like, someone says, "Oh, where are you from?" Oh, it depends on where I am in the in the world. Oh, so, right? so, so, do you, so like, do, if do, I, do, you if do that I'm strategically? LA, no, it's just more like if I'm not in LA, which is where I live now, I'll say LA or the US. Yeah. But if I am in LA, then I'll probably be like, "I grew up in South Africa." Is it because then people from LA, like, you're not from LA, is that or they well, want to find out, or they you they, you realize that they want to find out where you're from? I get this quite often. So that people oh, are like, oh, where, oh, where are you from? That, I'm like, that London. That really offensive question. And then you, you, they kind of look at you and go, <laughs> okay, well, no, no, where are you from? We're like, no, no, no. I'm still from London. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can ask yeah, me yeah, a different yeah. way. Okay. I'm still from London. Well, that's, however. A that's a different thing. Where yeah. It's like, well, where's your family from? You know, which is very yeah. different. Like, where did you grow up? Yeah, I don't know. I think... Maybe maybe it's just more interesting to talk about. <laughs> it's yeah, like it yeah. leads the, also so leads the conversation in the right direction. You mentioned your family's from China. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but then you grew up in South Africa. That's Did right. you em- emigrate I, there when you were young, or yeah. you, you were born? You emigrated. And what was what was your family doing in South Africa? Well, my dad is just like. Actually, I should probably. Okay, let's just. Like, he had some business in South Africa, and the whole family moved. Diamonds. As a result. Yes, actually. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right? yes. yes. Like minerals. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. They diversified. Okay. They okay. They, diversified. they found more than one precious stone, stone. in yeah. in the hill. <laughs> yes. So from that side, you know, living in South Africa, you grew up in South Africa, uh, and also through quite turbulent times in South Africa as well, seeing um, the change of of power as such. Yeah. Can yeah. I? I'm. I'm. I have a really interesting thought for my head, and I don't know what what years were you there roughly. Uh, right after the apartheid. Right after the apartheid. Let's say, know, what, was, what, what, what and, was, and then, this might be a slightly weird question, like, what was it like to be a minority there during that time that was, like, not part of oh, the two yeah. groups? Yeah. I, like, this is in my yeah, mind. Like, like, I've have, actually been asked that before. Not okay. too often, but someone yeah. has asked. Um, well, it's, uh, do you know, like, you know that Asians are called honorary whites? Like I don't wait, know. Where, 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 uh, in South Africa, at least okay, back yeah. then, <laughs> I don't know what what it is now. It's kind of offensive, of course, but but yes, that's that's how <laughs> well, that's that's a category that, that I was in. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because you know I'm technically like what <laughs> like once I get my U.S. citizenship, I would be like African American. So so we we I'm laughing can hard I because yeah. Lisa. Lena, Lena Chen, sorry. Um, Wait, can I ask? Yes, no. I want to say, <laughs> oh, say this. Clearly Asian. Could yeah. you, would you might possibly be the first Chinese African American? Chinese African American. That would be pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's, that's what I would be. Mm-hmm. Okay, I should, I, I should just go with that. that I'm going to speak Asian. to the Guinness Book of Records and, and see what we're doing here, right? Because that, that is a title to have. It's <laughs> a title. Just, you know, just in case you ever need to have one. <laughs> yes. um, but, you know, moving from there and then going into the States, was the culture different then so you know you grew, did you grow up with a south african culture you don't have this mean yeah. and menacing accent it's i used <laughs> to have a really cool south african accent which made me much more much it made me sound cooler than i am now right because like what, what are you I talking about like, like why just, are you shitting on the american accent like well <laughs> you know because being asian with a accent that's not american in the u.s people find that awesome yeah, I think Dina like, was pointing to me right that point. <laughs> yeah. you, know? you don't talk like you are. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask a potentially other like ignorant question? Were you guys like in the Chinatown of South Africa? Like, like is that no. like a thing there? Or there is a Chinatown, but like, but it's so small. It's not where the Chinese diamond people are. Like you, you you've upgraded. No, are you, are you trying to relate this to like no. Belgium and <laughs> 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 the Flemish? Is that yeah, it? yeah. I'm thinking like maybe you're thinking of like Alhambra or like uh, what's that other place called Monterey Park? I think in LA, where it's just like all Chinese and no, it's no, basically. I, like, I mean, I, it, no. most major cities yeah. around the world like have their Chinatown. Like I'm from New oh, York okay. and, and so well, on I'm, and so forth. I'm from a small town, so in, in yes, si- there is a Chinatown, but it's probably like <laughs> one mall. You know, <laughs> one mall. Okay. It's not like a giant and, neighborhood, and it's all supported by your family's diamond business, basically. Yeah. <laughs> As no, it goes, but, no. So um, you know, yeah, know. states um, trying to get through the story here. Just yeah. you know, just how it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then with the states, I mean, like, did you find it difficult to, to kind of switch between the two, and or, or no. was it just an easy? You know, you were just a cool kid with a different accent that looked different. 
Was that yes. part of it as well? <laughs> oh <my God>. um, well <laughs> yeah. She's like, what are you getting at here, James? <laughs> no, I mean, it's just more it, the, it, the growing up and seeing how that was. It didn't have much of a culture shock. Is that what you're... Yeah, kind um, of. Yeah. Um, but I'm being really stereotypical well, of like how I see South Africa and how I see LA. <laughs> it's like, South Africa is pretty European. So in Europe, it's, you know, there's obviously culture differences, but it's closer yeah. to the U.S. than a lot of other countries to the U.S. So it was like an easy switch. And then there was a lot of American TV when I grew up. So like that's also an easy switch. So yeah, not nothing. Okay. And then when you, you know, when you go to college, it's like it's a pretty diverse group of people who go there from all different like uh, areas of the country and obviously out of the country. So yeah. yeah. So nice and easy. It's pretty scene. easy. Yeah. We're, we're, I thought I saw you have a big name, but I don't remember if I'm, I'm correct about that. So I'll just ask. Where'd you go to school? In, oh, in Yale. Okay, that's yeah. what I thought. What, 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 what was it like to going to one of the big Ivies? It was great. I loved it. <laughs> I like. I have nothing but amazing things to rave about Yale. It was just such a great experience. Were you doing? Uh, uh, I want to make sure I know the right secret society there. Skull and Bones, right? Is it Yale? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that means the yes, looks people, people the looks. Day, I think they used to publish like people's names, but they don't do it anymore. Okay. Um, but yes to secret society. Yes. That's yes to secret societies. You're like, I'm for it. And that's why it was awesome. Your time at Yale. <laughs> it, it it was one thing that was awesome. But yeah, I mean, a lot of, you know, they. it's be, it's a beautiful campus and the people are really usually. <laughs> okay. Well, I think people at Yale are just like a lot more chill and cool and like kind of like leaning a little bit more artsy and then less what? intense then what yeah then, then what? as opposed to then like some of the other ivies such as if we, if we were to name drop wait, wait, we where did do. you guys where did you guys go I don't wanna we don't have to worry about that on my side I, I mean I went to Berkeley so okay okay cool yeah okay so actually um so are you trying to say the similar, Yale like is the, the Berkeley of okay no 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 because like okay what versus like Harvard people wait, not so, all so, so wait, wait I'm actually curious if this is a thing and I don't know how much you know about this but are you trying to basically say that Yale to Harvard is like Berkeley to Stanford no, no, I, but I, I do think Berkeley making? people also, like most Berkeley people I've met, like the culture seems like they're pretty chill. They're like, you know, they're they're ambitious and they achieve things, but they're not so like crazy intense, no. like aggressive. As yeah, you're talking like, to one you know? in a van <laughs> recording yeah. studio and at a yeah. Yeah, just as we mentioned that as well, by the way, um, this is the infamous Danish hail that wasn't meant to oh, come today oh, on yeah. a very sunny day. So it's oh, not yeah. static. If you're listening on the silent headphones, <laughs> it's just. <laughs> Hail. So there you yeah. go. Um, no, I was just really curious. So we started talking about the, the comparison of, of Yale to Harvard and the other Ivies. But but I like I like that comparison of we're, we're the chill Ivy one. We're, we're the yeah. cool one. We're not the, the stuffy elitist like the others. <laughs> like the <laughs> others. <laughs> like the others. Maybe one in particular. One well, in particular. Yeah. Is that the, the Harvard? Is that what you're going with? Yeah, that's the feeling. I mean, you know, it might be unfair because I haven't met everybody. So if there's any listeners at Harvard that want to say otherwise, (laughs) come to the van. (laughs) You know know where we are. (laughs) You have to fight the hail to get here. but (laughs) Yeah. But then fast forward again. Starting a company. Yes. What, what, you know, you've gone through a great education. Out of that, because we we did mention what your company was. Uh, Initially, you started a company. It was a gaming company. What got you into gaming? Why gaming? Yeah. So it's a mobile gaming company. No, no, but like, why did you get into gaming, and why why did you why? decide to start a gaming company compared to 
I mean, so, now you're not in gaming, so. Right. Well, I, usually I'm interested in all kinds of things that are fun, and fun is defined as like something that's like a leisure activity that you kind of want, but you don't necessarily need, need in the, like the essential life. Uh, like, I think fun is life necessary or death for life? kind of well, like life or death kind of sense. What it's about like usually health? not something like that. Yes, you know. I mean, so that's why it's kind of like I'll, I'll caveat it with like <laughs> yes, you can like kind kind of. It's usually like you were plotting like I want this. Yeah, you know, yeah. When, when, <laughs> I want to play this game. You know, although yes, like some games can change people's lives. Obviously, um, why did You're I like, get into it? <laughs> I no, did. No. It did change my life. I mean, having yeah. No, no, no. That's all right. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> Why, well, the question is, why did I get into yeah, it? Yeah, how'd you get into gaming? Um, and I mean, you got it why, and, and why did you start a gaming company? Well, and, and, so and, me and my co-founder, we were roommates in LA. I was working at William Morris, the talent agency, in TV. And we were just on our phones and being like, why is there, why are there no good games? We both like games. We're not like hardcore gamers, but yeah. like more, more like quote-unquote casual like gamers on our phones. But like, there's not really a lot of things that we just got that stuck to Zango, like we were like, we could get obsessive about. Um, and then at the same time, I was interested in the tech world and what was going on in startups and like okay. more, more digital things than traditional TV. So I started going to some tech conferences and like, especially some gaming conferences. And there's just like all dudes who make these games essentially. And we're like, oh, okay, well look, here's half the market that like, and gaming is like a, a lot of it. A lot of people go into it because they're truly passionate about yeah. it like this is what they enjoy playing that kind of stuff so they ended up making it things it wasn't for you you were like oh my god I need to make a game you were, you were doing something else with a colleague or with your housemate you're like we need to have something yeah it wasn't so much like we have to make a game no. as like um look, there's nothing in the space and how fun would it be to make a game? You know, we were young and like we didn't know how hard it's fun to play games. I don't know how fun it is to make a game. Sometimes it's fun. But yeah, like we were like, oh, this will be so fun. We'll make a game and look like there's half the market not being addressed so it'll probably be profitable is sort of how we <laughs> went into that whole thing. Yeah. It was a little like a smidge of naivety. naivety oh, that? oh. Just, oh, like well, a <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's good because without that, you know, you don't get started. No. Unless unless we were in the game industry for a long time, which we absolutely were not. We had no credentials. We had no business raising money, starting a company in gaming. You had no business you know, being in the, in the business of there gaming. You go. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. But what, but what is I mean, I think it's quite interesting of, of how an entire industry was just sort of overlooking an entire market. And cause and I think it's I find it really interesting that like I'm a bit of a gamer myself and I mean, there's tons and tons of female gamers, but no one's really addressing them and no one's really creating games for them. And, and I think, you know, addressing this need for, for you, I see you guys scratching your own itch, mm -hmm. essentially, like, hey, we want something for us. Right. Um, and, and fits into our needs. And I, I think that's really, I don't know, I think it's really interesting. How, how challenging was it to, to sort of create a company in, in such a kind of male-dominated and, and especially gaming's kind of very male-dominated space? And, and how was it received and... Uh, it was very challenging to start. Not necessarily. Yes, maybe the male-dominated part didn't help because a lot of angel investors that we had to pitch for, to. I mean, actually, all of them were male, mm -hmm. and so like really? a lot of angel investors, you know, they don't. Uh, they like to invest in what they resonate with. So it's not necessarily if they if they don't understand what <laughs> what you mean, they're not they're not like oh I have this need right. It's a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also really hard because. 
we didn't have any experience. Like we weren't like VPs in gaming, right? <laughs> and like we didn't, we, like, we did Hold learn multiple titles, <laughs> right? Exactly. Like we didn't have that, so that was hard, obviously. Um, but we did learn how to code, so we made a prototype. So we showed our seriousness of purpose. But aside from that, you know, it's not like we had like a full team product or anything like that. Yeah. So when two very young women are just going around asking for money, like. You know, for something that you Some never people done could get before. the wrong idea. Yeah, so that can be difficult. Well, no. <laughs> that <actually laughs> that's like, James didn't hear what I just said, but <laughs> Lena did. I tried to ignore you the best yeah. times, Alex. Like, you know, I've got my, like, you know, facetious field on for you. Like, no. um, actually, going into that, if you don't mind sharing that experience, like, how was it, you know, raising money in, in that space? Like, you know, is, it, is there anything that you'd like to do differently? Is there anything that you could have... Hmm. Gone through any I mean, lessons that you're you're trying to use for it now. It actually went pretty projects? well. I mean, okay, so that's a first. <laughs> I mean, I loved all our investors. They were really good people. So so like that, I feel very lucky because I didn't vet them. So you know, it wasn't like a rigorous process. <laughs> I just you know, but to be fair, like there was one person. <laughs> Let the caveat who, <laughs> Actually, you know what? It wasn't a rigorous process, but I usually go with my gut. So there was one person who did want to invest and I did not let this person in. So I don't know. He could have been terrible. I don't know. Like I just had a bad no. feeling and that was, that was it. So everybody who came in, I had a good feeling or at least I didn't have like any red flags. So that's good. Well, um, and what was the other question? Well, no, it's just more that, you know, with the investment process. Yeah. To go to women in a field that you didn't know of. Like the the struggles, you you got funded though still, right? Okay. So that, that still went yeah. through. I think the, was it the, the the passion for the product for the product or for the, the the market knowledge or what was it that got it over the line? I've changed my question as I, as I was actually saying. Like the how question did we get again, funded in despite of yeah, all the kind of all the things? Like, or how how are you like, selling it in a way? Yeah, considering yeah. all these sort um, of. I think the first round of financing is really just about. Uh, persistence obviously like you just keep asking until enough people until the right person says yes because they'll pull other people in as well um but also a lot of people just invest in you like the person so they look at you and you know they get to know you and they're like okay this is somebody who's not going to just give up after a couple of months or like be irresponsible for money like she's really serious about this she's smart enough that she'll figure right. it out even though she's never done it so it's like more of a personal investment in some ways i feel like Okay. When you don't have any experience, that's that's all. That's all you have to go on. Like, what is who is this person, right? <laughs> Just in the personal bit. Yeah, and you managed and to convince them to go through. One funny thing, which <laughs> might be my next. I'm, I'm. I will not talk too much about it, but it might be my next company. But one thing that I did do when I was raising um, money, I started wearing green a lot. Um, and Good. so my next, you know. <laughs> okay. Can, can can you yes, unpack that a little bit? Be, yeah. Okay. So, um, well. My next company might have something to do with, like, how your clothes will help you achieve certain goals in your life. Like, color, textures, motifs, or whatever. But the green thing happened kind of accidentally. Just one meeting, I, I wore green, and I noticed it went really well. And so, like, I would keep doing that. And the green, it's like, when I wore green, it helps me get money faster essentially more yeses you know more positive responses and it sounds really crazy but is it, um, then a, is it a whole item of one green or is it then it's usually um, the top that's green of, so it's not like your, your underwear or like no, no 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 or something that they big. can see yeah. yeah um but later i found out like there's science behind this it's it's okay. Well, for me, it was more like green is the color of money, but the science behind it is <laughs> you're like, I'm just wearing I mean, money, you know, so money will come. There, there you go. <laughs> it's more like they associate you with like you will bring money to them. Um, but science behind it is like 
it makes people think more creatively. So let's say you're pitching them something kind of wacky or whatever. They're sort of like opening up their minds a little bit more, being more receptive to what you're saying. So green is a color. Any other colors? I must know. There's there's no green on her today. No, later I also found out green can be quite dangerous. The right, the right shade is good. And I, I, you know, I, I have a little bit of synesthesia, which is like when you mix senses. And so like my colors are very sensitive. So I think I was like, Naturally, I didn't wear the wrong green, <laughs> but it's oh, actually yeah. a kind of like could, could be like a green. Is that good green? Or, it's or hard to talk about colors. We'd have to like have a have a you know like shades okay. of colors in front of us, and <laughs> I'll but, tell but, you. But, about, but, yeah. but how about grass green compared to your your can green? So like the literally like the grass that's out here sure. right now. Um, I would I would definitely go with more of this one. I mean, this is more of a jewel tone can. Just so this is very good. Way. For a second, this I'm just going to describe like people. So we, we, we have a Faxacondi <laughs> can. For people in Denmark, <laughs> we have go. a Faxacondi can. It's that color. For green. everyone outside yes. of Denmark, Denmark, it's a Sprite. It's a Sprite. Yeah, <laughs> it's a Sprite. <laughs> Grape juice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this looks like a color of an emerald, which is, I think, very good. No. Yeah, and this is, this is probably a safe safe green for, for that particular purpose, but you wouldn't want to wear it on a date, on a first date, for instance. What would it mean on a first date? It's just... Um, it, it's not. It's just like it could make you look kind of like sallow and and like not. Um, it green's not like the most attractive color necessarily. Okay. So, so I, have a, green, I have a question. Safu, sorry. Yeah. Just get rid of that jumper. <laughs> <laughs> right. but, but especially for women. But for men too, a little bit. Yeah. It's just like don't. Just stay away. So another then, if we strange that first date color to wear. <laughs> now we're really strange. <laughs> so yeah. so no. my quick question is so so you're here with us and you're wearing black. So what are you trying to get out of us? Like, oh yeah. Okay. I believe the answer is nothing. <laughs> um, well, black is a good color. You know. You actually notice a lot of speakers are probably wearing black today, naturally. Um, black, it depends on the context, but it definitely shows like competency, authority, but it li- like quite a bit of aggression if it's in a competitive context. So you might not want to, depending on what kind of person you are, like I don't appear very aggressive at all. So I'm okay. I can wear all black and no one's going to feel like um, bad, mm. like negative towards me necessarily. But if you're naturally a pretty dominating, like overwhelming kind of personality, black you might want to pair back a little bit on the black depending on what you wanted unless you you know want to like you go into a competitive situation so so, (laughs) So you want to wear a lot of black interesting I'm kind of curious uh We've been sitting here for how long? Have we been sitting here? Twenty? I don't know. I don't. Well, I've out. had the paper flash. But also, I'll say I have great pants like, on. So it's, it's yeah. it, you know, no, no. It makes sense. Uh, on the last thing, I think this is where we'll end off. The other person's waiting. Okay. Uh, we've been sitting for about twenty minutes. What color should me and James be wearing, based oh, on our okay, personalities? Okay. That, I cannot answer that without knowing like your person. Your very like your personalities, like your, the, your family backgrounds, like we what both your have goals blue blazers on. We both have like great jackets and t-shirts. It's what, 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 tell me, like, more about, I guess, like, what, what would you, in what no, context? And it's so context-specific, too. Mm. Okay, so... It's like just, like, this, this is going to be a like, very long conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, yeah. so hold on. I, I think we have to end there, but... Lena, yeah. we're gonna have you back, and we're gonna Got do an entire show just dedicated right. to right. what what clothes we should be wearing. I think this James. is Lena turning the color of life. In the color of life. I think I think literally, James, right. uh, we're bring, building a platform with a whole bunch of podcasts. We're gonna do another podcast with Lena, all about colors. That's all we're gonna do is all is, right. is, is Lena, Lena Chen's color podcast <laughs> <laughs> on Startup okay. Forty Two Media. Okay. <laughs> and I think on that note, I think we're off. And, and on that note, that's Alex. <laughs> 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 Hi, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Love the Problem podcast. 
This was another event special at Tech Barbecue. Uh, just want to do a quick th- shout out and thank you to Tech Barbecue for allowing us to run the podcasting stage at the event. It was super, super fun and really, really beneficial for us. Um, so check out some of the other recordings that we'll be releasing from that. Uh, but for this episode, a really special thank you to Saba, uh, Daniel, Michael, and Lena, as they did some really, really great content uh, about a number of different problems that are really, really interesting. As always, uh, please like, comment, let us know how we're doing, tell us the good, the bad, the ugly. And if you have anyone else who you want to be on the show, please let us know. Uh, thank you, and we'll see you next time.